Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend, and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. Before we get started this week, just a quick heads up that if you're building in Web3, the next class of the Techstars Web3 Accelerator takes place in spring 2024, and applications are open now. As Web3 is global and borderless, so is Techstars Web3. Although most of the Accelerator content is delivered virtually, the class does meet up in person for a week at a time at the beginning, middle, and end of the program in different cities around the world. Jump on over to techstars.com slash accelerators slash web3 to apply. Joining me on the show this week is Sean Lee. Hello, my name is Sean Lee. I'm the Senior Advisor at the Crypto Council for Innovation, which is a global alliance of crypto industry leaders that are advocating for responsible and healthy regulations in the digital asset industry. Sean has conducted business in over 20 countries and two continents across his career, and networked with extraordinary professionals across many industries. As a technology enthusiast, his career started in Internet 1.0 during the mid-90s, spanning across e-commerce, cloud computing, and digitalization with IBM, EMC, Pivotal, and Dell, before we moved into blockchain and crypto in the last few years. Through it all, he has witnessed how technology combined with innovative business models can transform industries and ultimately global economies as well. In this episode, Sean and I lean into how some of the current events in crypto pointed the opportunity for education, advocacy, and policy to accelerate the adoption of digital assets and blockchain technology before we take a closer look at how his leadership role with the Crypto Council for Innovation will help to do just that as we step through an example of policy building through the lens of DeFi or decentralized finance. We also went through the different ways we talk about Web3 to non-crypto natives, and a big change that we would both like to see in how most Web3 founders think about fundraising. All right here on Money Never Sleeps. Sean Lee, how are you? Great to be talking to you again. I've been great. There are lots of activities in this world and good news and bad news. And I think we're all handling them as we speak, but doing very well and really happy to see the industry hopefully taking a page. For the good, for yeah, the better. Absolutely. No, I'm right there with you. And it's great to have you back on the show. And you're one of nine guests who have come back a second time out of this is now episode 238. So you're in good company. The I'm first honored. episode we did with you, which was episode 201 last year, it was one of our very few video podcasts. Mm -hmm. And we've done only mm. four of them out of the 237 so far. So the first uh, one was Gene Murphy. He was episode 94, and he is Founders Boost, which is a pre-accelerator in the U.S., also an Irish yep. startup ecosystem OG. We had Joey Krug from episode 166, which is he's Pantera Capital. We had, and you'll like this one, Ernest Cantlin and Brian Elders, who I don't think you know. You might, you might have heard of Brian, but they mm. were Dramex, which yes. was tokenizing casks of whiskey. <laughs> Nice, nice. Definitely caught my absolutely, attention there. Absolutely. And that's right there in your LinkedIn profile. The fan of whiskey. Oh, yes. So am I right there. And we could have mm -hmm. a whole discussion just around whiskey, I'm sure. And then your mm -hmm. episode 201, which we did on video. So it's great to have you back. And before we get started, can you just give our listeners a refresher on Sean Lee, on your background and where you're coming from before we dig in? Certainly. So I'll do a, yep. a quick one. I've spent roughly half of my life in North America and half of my life in Asia. So that gives me a lot of privilege in terms of understanding both the East and the West in terms of where things are, both from a news cycle perspective, 
and also more importantly in the digital asset industry that I'm in. I come from a background from an infrastructure perspective. I used to spend a lot of time in the data center cloud computing space before I got into crypto and blockchain. Previously, I was the CEO of the Algorand Foundation, a layer one blockchain incubated out of MIT by Turing Award winner Silvio McCalley. I ran that for a number of years. And then earlier last year, I transitioned into a, a regulatory advisory role with the Crypto Council for Innovation which is a global alliance of crypto industry leaders that are advocating for responsible and healthy crypto digital asset regulation globally. We'll talk about a little bit more about uh, some of the latest conversations that we've been having with policymakers around the world, especially in light of where things are happening in different parts of the world, both from a progressive perspective and also from a worrisome perspective. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. Wonderful. Oh, thanks. Thanks for that refresher. I love that background of yours and that crossover, like you said, between the East and the West, as well as between the, the real core infrastructure side of technology, mm -hmm. and then now being out in front and leading from an advocacy perspective, which is a very good combination to have, because it means that you can understand both sides of the room in those conversations. I think as this industry continue to mature, education is very important. But I think the industry likes to think the education needs to go towards the regulatory side. I would, ar I would um, argue to defer, right? Education needs it to does. happen on both sides, right? right? We need to understand the heads of the regulator in terms of what they're thinking from a consumer protection perspective. But at the same time, I think the developers also need to be able to share innovations that can potentially mitigate much of the risk that the regulators are worried about as well. So the education goes on both sides. I'm in a very fortunate position to be working with ex-regulators, ex-policymakers, but also very large industry players so that we can really hopefully move this industry forward now that many of the debacles are seemingly behind us. Seemingly goes... behind us. And obviously we had our big development last week with the Sam mm -hmm. Bankman-Fried trial and him being convicted on all counts. And we'll see if that ends up in him serving consecutive terms so we'll, we'll see what happens there. But I thought it was really interesting just with Damian Williams, who is the U.S. attorney and prosecutor, in his post-conviction mm -hmm. speech, two things stood out to me. And I'll quote this, what Damian Williams said. He said, while the cryptocurrency industry might be new and players like Sam Bankman-Fried might be new, this kind of corruption is as old as time. This case has always been about lying, cheating, and stealing, and we have no patience for it. This, to me, is what a lot of folks have been saying all along, is that this was not crypto. Mm -hmm. This was fraud. Right. And has crypto right. been exonerated? No. I think, look, perception takes a long time to erase, right? And the crypto industry in general has gone through lots of up and downs, but lately, last 18 months or so, lots of downs. And most of that has to do with, one, bad actors, but also, secondly, from a narrative perspective, right? And these things are very difficult to erase. You will need a lot more goodwill coming from across the world and with different industry players to be able to really turn that around. It is not impossible. It, it will, will take time, right? It will take time. So I wouldn't say crypto has been exonerated. I think the only way I would put it is it's a sigh of a relief that this clown show is finally over. It doesn't matter whether he serves it consecutively or, or in parallel, whatever it is, he's going away for a very long time. Now, what does that serve? That serves as hopefully as a very significant deterrent 
from any additional bad actors who knows they're doing bad things and continue to do so, thinking and hoping that they can escape the law. There is nowhere yeah. to hide, right? You're damaging the industry. And if you're continuing to do that, the same thing is going to happen to you, right? So I'm hoping this serves as an alarm, a, a significant deterrent for the entire industry that we need to push this forward and in the only direction that it should be going, which is in a positive and Absolutely. innovative way. Absolutely. The second thing that jumped out at me is that, as you said, it's a warning to every fraudster out there and that they, if they think mm. their crimes are too complex for us to catch, that they are too powerful to prosecute or that they are clever enough to talk their way out of it if caught, those folks should think again and cut it out. And the cut it out mm -hmm. is what stood out to me. And when I saw him say this, it was, mm. that's what I say to my kids. So was that a little <laughs> bit of a subcontext there of, hey, kids, stop messing about? When some of the original details came to light on what FTX was doing or was not doing, I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, my God, they're just not running a professional organization. This is just a bunch of kids running around. And there was a movie that mm -hmm. I was referring to at the time, which was Lord of the Flies, a very good book. Right. The movie was yeah. interesting. And that at the end of the movie, mm -hmm. and I'm going to ruin this for anybody who's not seen it, all these kids are running around like wildlings. And probably mm -hmm. one of them was or, or trying to kill each other. And a U.S. Marine comes up on the beach after these kids had washed up on this island and been there for six months or whatever it was or a year. And he's like, what are you kids doing? And that to me was similar that, listen, if you're not running your business in a proper professional way, I don't care what you are, whether you're a cloud yeah. provider, whether you are a crypto services provider, whether you're making sandwiches, you just have to run your business the right way and do it with some people who have been there before and they know how to run businesses from a CFO perspective, from a compliance perspective, from a legal perspective, from an yeah. operational perspective and checks and balances and controls and yeah. all that type of stuff. So I liked that cut it out. And that, listen, yes, mm -hmm. we need to take a step forward as an industry. And that quite a number of folks have. And I'd say the great majority have. It's that we still got some kids out there that are messing around. I think my message, and I've been, I've been saying this quite a bit recently, is that the education and awareness level of regulators in most major jurisdictions have accelerated so much that you can't really hide or try to pull a quick one anymore. That is not going to be the case, right? They, in some cases, some of them probably know even more than your average new founders in the space, right? So, and they are much more aware of what each other are doing in different jurisdictions. Like there was this, this thinking that people can potentially arbitrage yeah. in terms of regulation. I don't think that's happening anytime soon, honestly, right? Almost all of the major jurisdictions are talking to each other. They're collaborating and, and, and they're coming up with common frameworks. Now, I think that's very healthy. Obviously, part of our job is to make sure that these frameworks are workable, not only from a regulator perspective, but also from an industry side as well. But the notion of, well, I think they're going to be slower and there's going to be more leeway on this side. I think that gap is going to continue to shrink. And we've seen it over and over again in every technological innovation or a cycle that we've gone through. We are now entering a phase of maturity. And when that happens, folks are going to work together. Companies are going to work together. Jurisdictions and regulators are going to work together. And that pushes the industry forward. So don't think, and I, I still hear this, right? 
oh, regulators don't know what they're talking about. Oh, listen to X, Y, and Z, and oh, they don't even know what a private key is. Well, maybe some of them still are learning. And look, they're politicians, right? And many of them may be coming from a law background or whatever it is, but they are learning faster than you think. And we need mm -hmm. to help them. And they need to they help do, us. Absolutely. And it's nice to see some of the things that have happened recently. For example, a crypto services provider selected Ireland as the mm -hmm. Rika hubs, the new market and crypto assets regulation yes. coming out of the European Union. And that the reasons that publicly shared reasons are, listen, this is a robust regulator in Ireland. It's a mature regulator. So it's it does make a difference. And it is quite helpful to see these that, like you said, they're not selecting the less mature jurisdictions and that the regulatory arbitrage, that whole context is flittering away a bit and that you've got to you've got to do this in a grown up way. And, and Ireland, Ireland has always been known as a, a technical innovator, right? Where a lot of the larger, very well-known Web 1 and Web 2 company, technology companies that have been stationed in that, the, in, at least the international arm have been stationed in Ireland. But that also means though, that there is a certain level of understanding and appreciation in terms of what technology can bring. And fundamentally, when we talk about digital assets and crypto and blockchain, it is a, a mashed up between tech and finance. Yep. Right. And you really need to have that level of understanding to even know where to go and where it would make sense from a policy perspective. So I applaud the Iron governments in, in, in doing that. And I would say there are several jurisdictions now that are really pulling their weight and moving in that direction. And maybe we can talk about that later as well. Um, but it's really good to see. Right. It's not all negative news, all regulate through enforcement type of uh, verbiage that we continue to see, it is actually trying to make a difference and it's good, right? And you're not going to get there on the first try. And we do need to try both as an industry as, and as a regulatory uh, body. Moving forward from here, right? And I wanted to dig into mm -hmm. that a bit, is that you and I talked a year ago about making Web3 universally accessible. And with everything that has been going on, and we can put this SBF behind us, we have some work to do and that it's perhaps mm. even with just changing mindsets through education, through advocacy. So now even if Web3 founders and even some non-Web3 players such as Fidelity, Amazon, Apple even, if they mm. go on a major push to make it incredibly easy to use digital assets, is it going to make a difference if we can't grow the adoption because of a communication problem, because of a PR problem? It will absolutely make a difference. Think about it, right? We call 20 years ago, we went through the, the dot-com bubble, we went through the dot-com bust, and there were lots of companies that we've never heard of before and have never heard of it since then, right? So it's the same kind of cycle that makes sense, right? You have to try on there. Um, but what made it real into the internet and the web that we know today are those larger businesses that come into the space and taking a lot of the new innovation fusing that with their existing business and creating something entirely digital, right? So we've seen that. Now, obviously, you do have the technology or digital native companies like the Amazons or Googles of the world, right? And they become now the behemoth, right, of, of the entire industry. But you also have a lot of traditional companies that basically work on that together. So the examples that you just gave, especially in financial services, the Fidelities, the Nomuras, and even HSBC yep. now, right? A very conservative bank just announced a few days ago that they're now in the digital asset space and going to be offering digital asset custody business. That shows you that this is a wave that is not going away. Now, I'll tell you, though, what's going away is 
everyone thinking that crypto is just about trading. So you create some token and you're going to go trade it and you're going to go speculate it, pump and dump, and then you're going to make a quick buck. I think that mentality, given the fact that we've been a, in a bear market, but also the fact that we have all these blowups because of all of these crazy token projects that really brought no realistic economic value right, to everything that we do as a society, those are slowly going away. And in, in some cases, many of them have completely gone away. That gives you a lot more room to have real activities and real use cases that can come on. And look, we've been, last few weeks, we went through the Hong Kong FinTech Festival here and many events. And on many of the panels, like one of the key topics, is crypto ever going to be mass, going to achieve mass adoption? And I, I thought hard about that notion of mass adoption. And, and I wonder if that's actually putting it in the wrong place, right? Mass adoption means you're going to use it to do something that you already mm -hmm. do today, but it may be because it's better, so you use it. I am not sure if it's going to really replace anything, right? Money is still going to exist, right? Processes are going to exist. Financial services are going to exist. Creativity, right, from that perspective is still going to exist. We may have digital form on top of that, and we may use things like tokenization, and blockchain and transparency and privacy preserving technologies to make it better, but it doesn't replace everything. So I, I like to think that the mass adoption is already mm. here, except it's very not visible. And I would argue maybe we don't want it to be very visible. Like think about it, right? I, I think you and I talked about this before. Like if we wanted, we wanted to use digital currency and everyone's gonna have to manage private keys and think about all of these crazy things that really hardcore cryptographers understand, then this will never be there. What if we're able to hide it behind the scenes, still have the security, right? And the transparency and all of the benefits that the technology brings, but we don't yeah. even feel it. We just know that it's there. That's when we get mass adoption. So I, I don't think it's a, oh, everyone's going to be using X, Y, and Z, NFTs and this and that. I don't think it's going to be that. Like in time, I don't even think we're going to know it as NFT. It's just going to be a digital coupon, yeah. digital collectible, digital whatever it is, digital right. And we're going to use normal terms that we've always been very used to instead of all these very techno-driven terms because it's already embedded. You're reminding me of something that happened yesterday while I was driving one of my kids to school. 11 years old, I was explaining to him the Walkman, mm. the Sony Walkman going back to the 1980s <laughs> and the types of headphones and the right. cassette tapes and all of that. And I had to say, listen, we couldn't just use our smartphone to turn on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. And this, I, and I didn't even say streaming, right? Because I'm not referring to the technology, mm -hmm. but music is music. Music still exists. It's just yeah. we're consuming right. it in a different form. And money yeah. still exists. And I was having a chat yesterday with my Santa Maria who I think you might have met in Hong yes. Kong. Uh, I met her in okay. Tokyo, actually, at the OECD uh, consortium. Yes, uh, she and I were talking about central bank digital currencies. We're talking about stable mm -hmm. coins. We're talking about will the central banks issue them. We're talking about will the commercial banks under license issue the central bank digital currency who will service that? What is the point? What is the intersection? And it's that, and we're having that conversation very much along the lines of what you're saying, Sean, is that the technology is just going to slink off to the background and that people are still going to be spending money. People are going to be consuming digital things and that they won't really care or understand 
what technology is being used in the background. So I think we're very much on the same point on that. I think the one key thing about where crypto and blockchain and all of these new innovation will bring is that the border continues to be blurred. Now, that doesn't mean the borders mm. go away, right? We'd like to say it's borderless because the technology is a global network, public, and, and all of that. But we still live in borders, right? We are human beings. We live in borders. So just because the borders are blurred doesn't mean the border goes away. And it's blurred only because the technology make it that much more efficient, that much more frictionless, right, in order to transact. But we still need to play by the rules. The rules don't go away just because the technology seem to be able to do it much better and much more efficient. So I think that's the mentality that we need to get to now is how do we use all of this? And we've tried it right in a completely native way in a little circle. And it's gone a lot of innovation, but it's also gone a lot of not so innovative things that were ge very geared towards benefiting a few, but not the masses, right? So, so that has already happened. That, those experimentation has already happened. Now we've got to bring it back and figure out how do we actually make this truly borderless, but in a sense where it still respects the border nature of Definitely. society. And, and you and I, Sean, we could sit here and we can be agreeing vehemently on this <laughs> and, and the direction we need right. to go. And But we are in the minority, you and I and others that share the similar mindset in terms of the 8 billion people on the planet. And we've got a we've got a ways to go. And I have to keep reminding this, reminding our founders that are part of the Techstars Web3 Accelerator program. And thank you again for being such a wonderful mentor to our founders, Sean. I have to keep reminding them that this is a stuff that we're all living every single day and that we need to get the word out and we need to be able to communicate these things to folks that are not crypto native. And we need to be able to spread the good word and share these share these messages with them. And with the Crypto Council for Innovation, I'm expecting that is going to help play a big role in this mission and vision. And can you tell us a bit about what's going on there and how you're executing on those points? Absolutely. So let, let, let me, maybe I, I should explain a little bit about the, the origin of mm -hmm. the Crypto Council for Innovation, CCI in short. And then also what we've been doing over the last two years. So CCI was founded by some of the largest digital asset players in the space, the likes of Andreessen, Coinbase, Fidelity, Paradigm. And then also we lately we've onboarded infrastructure providers as well, the likes of Filecoin and ER Foundation. So we are really a industry focused member, member organization where we want to bring different facets about the whole notion of digital assets and blockchain and what it means from an innovation perspective, what it means from a policy perspective, and what it means from a collaboration perspective, right? That's really what we focus on. And of course, the overall goal is to advance the potential of digital asset and blockchain, rather than saying the goal is to advance a certain policy. That is absolutely not the goal, right? The policy will come along with it if we're able to truly demonstrate the innovativeness of all of these things that we're talking about. Right? It, it will be a byproduct anyways. And yes, a majority of our engagement point are with, the, with regulators and policymakers, but because our members also happen to be the backers of some of the most innovative fi, uh, DeFi and CeFi products out there, that they naturally have a lot of knowledge around 
the capabilities and new things that are being innovated across the entire industry and also across the globe so that we can really bring all both of those together. So that's really what CCI is all about. Now, if I were to look at the way how we split up our work, I would say probably half of our work is towards direct advocacy. So having direct conversations, bringing the industry to the regular and bringing the regulator to the industry, right? So that whole advocacy work in regards to how that actually functions. So lots of Q&A, lots of sessions, lots of boot camps. And the goal is to be really, if we're this far apart, well, we need to be this far apart or maybe even on the same level, right? So that's the goal. The other side though, is we need to look a little bit further ahead of us. So for example, with all of the things that were happening in 2022, with the likes of Celsius and FTX and all of these incident, massive incidents that really affected the whole industry and overall economies around the world, we need to get ahead of it. Now, what I would say is most jurisdictions and most regulators are pretty well there in terms of C5, centralized finance regulation, right? Because it, at the end of the day, it actually looks very similar mm -hmm. to what we have today, right? So we're going through that phase now from a centralized business perspective, a centralized finance perspective. And I think most major jurisdictions more or less got that sorted. So part of what we do now is trying to get ahead of it. So things like decentralized finance, how do you regulate that, right? And we don't want to be sitting in a position where we say, ah, the industry thinks decentralized finance because it's decentralized and regulation don't apply. Well, that's not entirely true because DeFi isn't a thing. DeFi is many things, right? We talk about this notion of composability. Things are pieced together to formulate this thing called DeFi, right? So what part of it can potentially be regulated and what part of it perhaps should be exempt from regulation? So an example of that would be a DeFi policy uh, framework that we recently released uh, and published it directly on our website for all to see. And it's a months of efforts of interview, research, data gathering, conversations. And we put together not only what DeFi is all about, but more importantly, how do you dissect DeFi into an easy to understand manner? And based on those, where can you potentially apply regulation? And where can you create a pathway for both the regulator and the innovators in the space to actually go towards a mutually compliant space, right? So we do a lot of research to look ahead on where things are coming. And yes, because of the bear markets, DeFi volume are dramatically down, right? From the height of 2021. But just because it's down doesn't mm -hmm. mean it's going away, right? It hasn't gone away. In fact, you're now hearing things called institutional DeFi, right? So that clearly means that there are things here from a technology perspective, from an efficiency perspective, that even the larger players are looking into and say, hey, this is a tool, a platform that I could potentially use. So this isn't going away just because the number is lower. So regulators are now trying to get ahead and we want to be in a place where we can help them. And we are not, and, and I will say this, right? We are not there to say, this is a definitive policy and this is a definitive framework and you have to use it. What our goal is to create a common denominator that different jurisdictions to apply and then to layer on top jurisdictional requirements and specificity so that it will serve their specific purpose, right? So when we talk to VARA and ADGM in the Middle East, or when we talk to the European Commission, or when we talk to the Japan FSA or the Singapore MAS, every jurisdiction have their own nuances, have their own existing rules that they need to comply to. 
So how would a common framework serve the purpose for all of those so that we can have some consistency and the industry can actually use those consistency to continue to move forward, right? So rather than what we talked about earlier, hedge against this over, over another. We don't want to see that, right? And regulators are clearly of the same mindset that they need to get ahead. And they, the better, the earlier they get ahead, the better the whole industry is going to be. And it's not just DeFi, right? Stablecoin, self-hosted wallet. Like, what does it mean by self-hosting a wallet? Is it really just like a leather wallet that we have, have had for hundreds of years? Or is it very different now? And there are new technology, multi-sig, MPC. Like, how does that all play into the game of self-hosted wallet, right? It's not so black and white anymore. So they are all doing research in that space. We are doing research, so hopefully we can help. It's mind-blowing. And you got me thinking here about DeFi in particular and DeFi regulation. And I was talking to someone mm. uh, probably last year about this who had applied for the Techstars Web3 program and was proposing a utility for simplifying KYC the know your customer requirements mm. for yes. DeFi and for uh, decentralized mm -hmm. exchanges. And I said, that's not going to work. But, and the big but is that, that regulators are now looking at this in depth and saying that should decentralized exchanges, KYC, those that are using the platform, have you covered that at all in your policy? And w yeah. what is the direction yes. that you think things are going to go on that? Absolutely. So we simplify DeFi, and, and I would emphasize the word simplify, right? Because I, I don't want anyone on, in the audience to say, well, DeFi is much more than that, right? I know it is much more than that, but you have to start somewhere. So we, we look at it from a four-layered perspective. Like, so if we look at the bottom, we have the settlement layer. In the DeFi space versus CeFi, right? The settlement is very much on the public networks where these assets mm -hmm. are actually being run. Again, which is very different than CeFi, which is on a centralized ledger that they manage, right? So the, set, the settlement layer is different. Then on top of that is the, is the protocol layer, right? And the protocol are indeed what, you, what we would call smart contract engines, right? They're autonomous. They're meant to be autonomous. And they're meant to be executing the logic within the smart contract without any intervention from any centralized party. That's what would be categorized as a DeFi protocol, right? And in our paper, what we talk about is we don't want to lump all DeFi together because the settlement is actually outside. The settlement's on chain, right? No longer on centralized ledger. The protocol is smart contract engines, autonomous and not, not managed by a centralized party. But then you also have interfaces or applications that connect you into the DeFi protocols. So it could be a lending, it can be a lending protocol, borrowing, whatever it is, right? These applications are then connecting with the user, which is on the very top. So four layers, right? User, application, the DeFi protocol itself, and then the settlement layer. Now, we would argue, and, and this is the argument that we put in the paper, is that the bottom two layer, if they qualify for some very specific requirements that we put into the paper, then they could be considered public good digital infrastructure, like the internet but they'd have to have those features in place. And what are those features? As an example, they have to be decentralized, meaning again, no centralized party or few parties, right? So if you have a governance model that allows for only five governors uh, to actually go vote, vote on the thing, well, that doesn't count, right? Decentralized means sufficiently decentralized, right? You have to be open source, has to be autonomous, right? Has to be non-discriminatory, so anyone can get access to it and so on and so forth. So there are a number of things that will constitute 
the protocol and the settlement layer to be considered as public good digital infrastructure. And if they are able to continue to demonstrate those qualities, then they could be potentially exempt from regulation. But here's the thing. The protocols don't interact with the users directly. The users have to go through something, whether it's code or an interface, like a mobile application or a browser interface. They have to go through something. And when they go through something, and that application typically is then managed by a centralized party. That's someone has to develop it, right? And as much as it, the assets may not be held by them, they are still facilitating the transaction between the user's own assets and the protocols that they're going to connect into. They will have obligation. Now, would that obligation to be exactly the same as what we will then apply for a CFI, like a centralized exchange? No, because they don't hold asset. They don't custody your assets. So some part of it is going to be quite different. But do they have disclosure requirements? Telling you, giving you the connotation and the details around the underlying protocol that they're connecting you to. Do they have obligation to disclose the various different tokens that are in a particular pool that you're accessing, and where those tokens are coming from, and whether those whether those pools and the tokens and the underlying technology that represent those tokens have been have gone through rigorous security audits? Right. These are fundamental things that are the responsibility of a business. That is servicing their customers, whether they hold their assets or not. So we go into a lot of details to go through DeFi into multiple different layers, and there are nuances in each one of them. But there are implications in terms of where regulation can apply, and where regulation can potentially be exempt. Again, given some of those requirements that must be in place in order for it to be done. So now the reason we do that though is then say, okay, once you have these distinctions. Then you can start to go into the recommendation aspect, which is, well, no protocol is ever going to be decentralized on day one. We know that, right? When you develop something, the network effect is not really there yet. You will have fewer players that are more or less controlling the network in the beginning phases. And if they do the right thing and the tokenomics is done in the right way, then decentralization spectrum will be spread out and thereby sufficiently decentralized. But you don't get there in day one, so. You can't be so black and white in terms of regulation, right? So, can we design something like a safe harbor environment or a、mm. sandbox environment, depending on the jurisdiction that you're in? And you can guide them in terms of where that is by some sort of certification, right? And the certification could come from a centralized party like the regulator, or it could be an industry-driven self-regulation environment, right? So, we give a lot of nuances and optionality. Towards where the layers can be, and what are the policies and the thought process behind them, and then what are the recommendations and outcomes that can be there. And, and there's no better person to do this than you, Sean, because of your your depth of understanding of all this, both from the technology perspective and the business perspective, and the regulatory perspective as well. And that as you're talking, you should see the shapes forming in my head. Okay, and that. Uh, with with my history in traditional finance and running operations and compliance and regulation, and I'm seeing these the layers is a great way to talk about it. In that, when you think about the very base layer and you think about sound technology and you think about robustness of security around, that's a different type of assurance, a different type of a set of assurances that you're seeking to get that you're seeking to get comfortable with. And that that is something that is more inclined to what we would call a SOC two 
type certification, right? right. Or an, there is an exactly. ISO certification, I forget, that yes. where you're looking to make sure that the development practices and the controls and the security are sound and not necessarily how they're treating individuals and how they're onboarding people, because that's not the responsibility of that layer. The responsibility of that layer goes higher. And like you said, the first mm -hmm. transaction that I did on Uniswap was through a MetaMask wallet using a Zapperfy utility that is part of that wallet. And so that gets you then thinking about who has that relationship with the individual and who has the control there. And again, even in that case, that exactly. is a piece of technology. That is utility. That, is, that was a digital wallet yes. that I was using and where I was making my own decisions based mm -hmm. upon what those utilities could enable me to get access to. So the, mm -hmm. yeah, this is a big can of worms. Well, it's a big can of worms if we yeah. don't demystify it. No, I'm, I'm saying it's a big right. can of worms that uh, you and I could get yeah. into here. Because there, there's so many, ah, uh, there's ah. so many other strands <laughs> to pull on. Oh yes. But one, one of the things that I wanted oh, yes. to get into just w was that was definitions, and we we're talking about uh, making this accessible to people, and and so that they can understand what we're talking about here. And that when we look at Web three, the definition that I had been using for some time was the Chris Dixon from Andreessen Horowitz Crypto or A16Z mm. Crypto, and Packy McCormick, who's yep. one of the advisors. He's also a great writer and podcaster. And the definition was, or still is, that Web3 is a builder and user-owned internet orchestrated by tokens. And I had been referring to that when I tried to use that to explain to a bunch of non-crypto natives, I was going to explain that sentence in three or four or five different ways, and it just wasn't working. And what tends to work now, but still, I'm still just road testing this, is Sam Williams' definition, who is the founder of Arweave which is that Web3 is a protocolization mm -hmm. of web services. And to go a bit deeper, it's where it is trustless, permissionless, composable, and financialized. And I won't get into each one of those four things. But when I talk about the protocolization mm -hmm. of web services, that tends to remove the dependence on a token and that mm -hmm. and tends to remove some of the mysticism around tokens and, and what their role is in, in this whole thing. Is there a way that you like to describe Web3 that you think resonates when you're talking to people who may not be part of this world on a day-to-day -day basis? Maybe I'll do it this way. I, I think the Web3 to me is the transferability and the privacy of mm. digital ownership over public networks. That's what it is. It, whether it's a token or not, it's just digital yeah. ownership. And that's fundamentally the main thing, right? Web 2, the ownership isn't exactly in your hands, your users, right? In Web 3, you should be able to own it. And it's not just crypto assets. It could be your identity. It could be your academic records. It could be anything that are recorded on a blockchain, right? So public networks. So I like to think it's the transferability and the privacy, right? that privacy of digital ownership over public yeah. network. In very simple terms, and you've even simplified it further for me and got me thinking about this, Sean, so thank you, which is where I end up with this sometimes. And woman that I used to work with, may she rest in peace, Nora Grasso, would always say to me, Pete, you've got a wonderful mm -hmm. way of explaining things in such a technical way that nobody knows what you're talking about. But you usually round that out with a wonderful summary. So... Just say your summary. And my summary generally ends up in a place when I'm talking about Web3, which is digital value transfer. 
and digital ownership is a, is a great way to talk about it as well. And speaking of Web3, one of the questions that I'm asking a lot of people these days, is there one mm. big thing, one big problem that you would like to see founders who are building in Web3 that you'd like to see them solve? Okay. Yes. And I've been doing this quite a bit from, a, from an advising, advisory mentorship perspective. Web3 does not equal some sort of token. Building a Web3 business does not mean you have to launch a token. I don't know why there's this misconception that, oh, it has to be, there has to be a token because the token is going to drive a community ownership mentality and this and that. If you're building a blockchain network, that makes sense, right? Because you are creating almost like in your own economy and within your own economy, you need a unit of, of transfer that actually allows you to facilitate these value transfers that you're talking about before. But that doesn't mean you need a token for every Web3 project. And I think there's a misconception out there that you need to do so. So I consistently tell people now, if you're going to create a token, you better darn sure you can explain exactly what that token is, number one. Number two, you better be sure that you do not explain to people that your business model is only hinging on the token going in one direction. That is not a business model, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. matter what it is. That is not a business model, right? So if you don't need to create a token, but you're creating a Web3 business, you are transferring value one way or another, depending on what, the, what that is, and you don't necessarily need the token, yeah. why create it? I, I understand why the allure of doing it, right? We've all seen the last four or five years of all of these crazy projects and what could go... If it goes well, what could mean for the founders? That's not sustainable. And I think time and time again, don't create something for the sake of creating it because that is not the right yep. way to do it. Yep. And I'm going to take you saying that, Sean, and I'm going to play it on repeat over and over again for founders. Okay. Because I say that all the time. Sometimes it doesn't sink in and people still think, well, we need to launch a token because we're Web3. And it, 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 the conversation usually goes, well, you're a centralized business. Why do you need a token? And it said, well, our community expects us to have one so they can have ownership of it. It said, well, why can't they just own equity in your business? And you could do some fractionalization and you could do a security token. It's like, well, no, no, we don't want to be regulated for that. It's like, well, and then what about the bigger investors? What about them? It's like, well, we haven't been able to raise money from them. So we know they'd like a token because they can flip it quickly. So they want to... They've asked us to launch a token. There you right? go. So it's, there you go. yeah, it, it, I think we need to move away from that. I woke up at five o'clock in the morning the other day, just thinking about this, not a flux capacitor like Doc Brown and, and Back to the Future, but it was <laughs> this graph I was seeing in my head of this growth of Web3 and that this dependence on the growth of Web3 um, decreasing based upon token speculation. And finding a way to explain that. Mm -hmm. Nick Carter from Castle Island Ventures, who does the On the Brink podcast with Matt right. Walsh, did a great 15, 20 page deck on stable coins where he explained some of this using some of the types of graphs I had in mind. So I'm going to take Nick's deck and see mm -hmm. if I can put something like that together for thinking about the growth of Web3. Yeah. But listen, given your experience, Sean, and what you've been through in your career, that I'd expect that there's going to be types of things that you talk about with founders, with anybody else that obviously you're going to be quite passionate about because you know this stuff inside out. 
And when I start gesticulating wildly and my hands are moving around the place, it's because I'm very excited and passionate about the topic I'm talking about. That tends to sink home mm -hmm. with founders when I do get that excited about something. Now, you're going to have things that you know about that are just intrinsic to your very nature that are so part of what you do in your approach that you've had from your experience and that there are things that you know that others either don't know or that they expect to be the opposite or they expect to be false or that they think are false. And these are what we call an earned secret. Do you have an earned secret from your time in your walk of life? I, maybe I'll say this. I do a lot of public speaking and because I enjoy explaining things and I, I enjoy that interaction with people because I am learning through that interaction as well. Many folks expect that I was a natural public speaker. And that is absolutely not the case. I was a fairly shy kid growing up and I was always petrified speaking in front of people. It wasn't until I was a teenager and my dad somehow looped me into getting better at this. So he, he looped me into uh, Toastmasters. Wow. And I still remember vividly the very first time when I went to a session and you have to do an icebreaker, you have to explain and introduce yourself. And he actually video recorded me. And you know how it is, right? Watching yourself is always hard. Even you and I now do, do this very often. Watching yourself is still pretty, it's not mm -hmm. the most comfortable thing. Yeah. So especially when you are pretty piss poor at it at the time when I was. I was uh, petrified, right? The funny thing was, I actually thought that I was using my yeah. hands a lot, right? And I thought I, I had proper hand gesture and all of those in my head. What it turned out when I watched the video was that I had my hands in my pockets yep. the entire time. So that kind of experience, I always, I, I like to share that when people ask me, hey, how did you develop this? Or were you born with this and, and this and that? No, it's through hard work. It's through shameless standing in front, doing a poor job, and then hopefully you can improve again and again and again and again. I don't know whether that's a secret or not, but this, I was definitely not born with it. It was something that I forced myself, which later on becomes something that I'm passionate about because communication fundamentally is, it's a given God-given right for every human being. And especially those of us that are in the technology industry, working on bleeding edge the next kind of generations of things that are to come, making it easy to understand, be able to communicate it in a manner that doesn't make it sound like science fiction is very important. And it's a skill, but it's a skill that I encourage many founders not to be afraid to do. And in fact, many of the many times when I'm mentoring, I actually devote a lot of my time, not on the pitch decks or on the business model. Obviously we'll look at that, but a lot of it is Okay, now that your pitch deck is done, present it to me. Let's work on how you can articulate it in the simplest manner that can get your message across and get the nodding head on the other side of the table. We do that a lot now. So I enjoy it. I, it's something that's very important and I'm glad I went through the process. Definitely. And you said you put it quite well there, Sean, and that it makes me think of something in your LinkedIn profile. Do or do not, there is no try, Master Yoda. <laughs> so yes, wonderful. <laughs> That's correct. Well, listen, this has been a fantastic chat, John. What is the best way for people to get in touch with you? 
probably over, I wanted to say Twitter, but no X, yep. the new X platform. Yeah, X and also Telegram. Both of them, my handles are Crypto Sean Lee, spell them one word, Crypto Sean Lee. You can also, I also do now a weekly podcast following in your footsteps, you. Pete, uh, through your encouragement uh, to me. Uh, so I do a weekly Asia Crypto Insight where I share in two minutes, roughly, interesting news that are coming out of uh, this part of the world, whether it has to do with policies or just interesting projects or partnerships that are happening here. And I have that on the Crypto Crypto Council for Innovation uh, YouTube channel, as well as my own Crypto Star Wars fans channel. And I run the podcast there as well. So if anyone's interested in this part of the world, what's happening and things like that, and you can spare two minutes on a weekly basis, certainly go there. That's great, Sean. We'll put all of that into the show notes. And I think people should be very interested on what's going on in Asia because Asia has a big front foot out forwards on all of this. So glad to have you out there and doing this and spreading the word and just helping to get people on board because we need it. So thank you, Sean. You're very welcome. Great to chat with you again. That does it for this week, folks. Thanks to Sean Lee for opening up his mind to help us figure out why he does what he does. And you can learn more about Sean Lee and the Crypto Council for Innovation on our website, moneyneversleeps.ie, including links in the show notes for his weekly video series, Sean's Take on Asia, where he covers the latest digital asset developments and policy updates. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as it helps others to find the show. Thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for mixing and editing this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I'm an early stage startup investor focused on where fintech meets crypto and crypto meets Web3. And I lead the Techstars Web3 Accelerator. Applications for our 2024 class are open now. So hop on over to techstars.com slash accelerators slash Web3 to apply. Also, there are plenty of links in the show notes on moneyneversleeps.ie on how to get in touch. So don't hesitate to reach out. Finally, until next time, thanks for listening. See ya.